So firstly, we say, well, what is kindness? I suppose we could, e- we could easily understand kindness as being that, that display of selflessness or the exalting or the kindness, a kind disposition, uh, a, a well-being towards somebody else, seeking the good of somebody else without any expectation or any expected benefit to me. I guess that's one of the ideas that we could have behind the idea of kindness. So let's not get confused. Kindness is is not just doing good. Because the reality of our hearts, we can very often know that when we do good, we do it for selfish motives. We do it for self-productive motives. We do it because it makes us feel good or because we, we, we treat it like a transaction. If I do good to that person, then I expect that good will be done back to me. And kindness isn't that. Kindness is the doing good, thinking good, uh, expecting that my attitude towards somebody else will be a good disposition without any expectation of anything back in my, my direction. That's really important that we see that best distinction. It's actually, to some extent, it's at cost to me. I think well of somebody without anything back. Now, if we think about this kind of, what's the opposite then? What's the opposite of kindness? Have you ever Ask that question. What is the... I guess we could say there's lots of opposites. But I think here's at least... I think this is the heart, at least as I've been working through. I think the opposite of kindness is self-pity. You might say, well, how? Well, if kindness is everything about the other person with no expectation towards me, the the polar opposite is everything about me with the expectation that the person will change in their attitude towards me. In other words, I think of my situation, I think of the things that I am facing, and I don't believe that this is right for me. I I think that this this is unfair, it's unreasonable, I am undervalued. I am underappreciated. Doesn't that sound the opposite of when we really value and when we really appreciate somebody else? The opposite is the self-filled self-pity. Stephen Fry described self-pity as the most destructive vice. I think he's gone to something there. He said the thing with self-pity is it destroys everything except itself. It destroys everything. It just destroys relationships. It destroys our, our view of anything that is good. We become totally engrossed and eaten up and consumed by ourselves. And kindness is the opposite 
to that. Now when we start seeing that issue of kindness, wow, what a change. What a transformation can take place when God starts working in us, when we realize that kindness is the outcome of being stripped of my self-centeredness. When it's no longer all about me. This little story that we've got, this little cameo that we read from the book of Luke, I think is an incredibly helpful little cameo of of human interaction and of our, our ideas, preconceived ideas, judgment and kindness. I think it really opens up for us and maybe starts to point some fingers on how we actually immediately start to think. It exposes our attitudes and the way we behave. Let's see firstly the three characters that we have displayed in this text. It really opens up with an introduction in verse 36 and verse 37. We find ourselves in the home of one of the Pharisees. One of the the Pharisees were the religious leaders, the religious teachers, the thinkers. Uh, They were also, would also have been seen in the culture as being the morally upright. They would have been looked upon in the culture of the day, in the day that Jesus was ministering as being those who would have been uh, supreme in what you would see as a good attitude and a good moral behavior. So we're in the home of a Pharisee. We find out in a few verses time that his name is Simon. And he's invited Jesus to eat with him. So we find ourselves in the home of Simon and we find Jesus, this, um, it's a difficult word to use because we fill it with all of our 21st century connotations. But if I said that Jesus was at this particular point, he was a celebrity. Now what I mean by that is that he was well known. He was well recognized. There were countless people who were following him. He, He was virtually unable to spend a moment of time on his own because he was continually being watched by everybody. He was being seen. Now can you see the significance for Simon at this particular point in time? He is entertaining at, in his own home, this well-recognized, influential, public figure, Jesus of Nazareth, the rabbi teacher. This person that really hundreds and hundreds of people would want to have been in Simon's position entertaining Jesus. That's the situation that we find ourselves in. Jesus at this point is well recognized. We also know from various archaeological uh, investigation that we find ourselves, to understand the context, houses of the day had a very private part and a more of a public part of the house. And Jesus would have been eating in the more public part of the house. Not entirely public, but it would have been on display. So Simon would have been eating with Jesus, and it's quite likely that uh, people uh, from the area, people who were close by to Simon, friends and acquaintances, some would have been eating with him, others would have been just gathered around and listening. 
So that's the situation that we find ourselves in. It's a very different context to the way we think about somebody being uh, welcomed for a, for a meal. Um, we don't think about having our meals watched by a whole load of people, do we? But Simon and Jesus would have been in that situation. And then the most extraordinary thing happens. It's just extraordinary. It's not so extraordinary that somebody not quite so well known to Simon came into that particular gathering. It's not as though this woman, who doesn't even have a name according to this text, she's not referred to by name, it's not so surprising that she came along and arrived at that place, but what she did was it broke every social convention of the day. It was outrageous. It was extraordinary what happened. As Jesus is, we, we get the picture from the text, he's reclining to eat, so his feet are, he's eating basically with his feet lying behind him. And this woman just walks into that situation she opens up a bottle of alabaster perfume. She wets the feet of Jesus. And as she basically bows over his feet, she is so moved that her tears fall onto the feet of Jesus, mix with the alabaster, and she wipes his feet clean with her hair. Extraordinary. This isn't a tradition that was normal. Number one, she's walked into a situation which is not really her place to be. Not with that kind of forwardness. She might have been, it might have been acceptable for her to sort of hang around in the shadows, but actually not in this particular case. Because we're told the kind of woman that she is. We're, we're, we're given a description of the, of the person that she is. And she is the absolute opposite end of the social spectrum from Simon. Simon the religious, moral, upright man. This nameless woman is a sinner, which is biblical terms for a prostitute. A woman who was would have been completely cut off from any possibility of any kind of religious engagement. She would have been ostracized from the whole of society. She would have been a woman of the shadows. I mean that in the sense of the relationship shadows as much as the shadows of the night. She would have been somebody who would have been completely out of place in this gathering. And the, if you like the focal point of this. Is Jesus. We've got Simon on one side. We've got a prostitute woman on the other side. Both remarkably at the centre of this event. One is eating with Jesus. One is wetting Jesus' feet with perfume and tears. And wiping his feet with her hair. And Jesus is right in the middle of it. 
I don't think it's possible to overstate the social crisis that this particular event brings. What is going to happen? How is Jesus, most of all, going to react to this? In fact, Simon has a clear view on how Jesus should react. The social crisis in his mind becomes a judgment both on the woman and a judgment on Jesus. That's his, out, that's his decision as he deals with this. He places himself at that moment in time above both of them. He places himself judging the woman already. Well, that's a given because he knows that she's a prostitute from the town in which he lives. But he also judges Jesus because he says in verse 39, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. We don't have these kind of conventions, but in the day... Anybody who would have touched a woman like this would have been unclean. Relationally, socially, religiously. That's how serious it is. We're living, if we place our Hebrew first century sandals on, trip back in time, we are living in a culture of shame. And it was a shame that this woman behaved in the way that she did, and it was a shame that Jesus allowed her to touch him. Both of them were now basically unclean socially. So Simon places himself in the position of judgment. I don't think this woman had even the first clue, actually, that Simon was even there. I mean, to one extent you would say, well, of course she did, because she knew which house that she was in. She knew where she was. She knew the issue that she was going into. She knew what she was about to do. But for her, all of her focus was on Jesus. Absolutely. This is all about Jesus. In fact, it was so compelling, so absolutely, overwhelmingly compelling that really all of the social conventions of the day went out of her mind. It was not an issue to her what she was doing because Jesus was, she was not placing herself therefore above Jesus, was she? She wasn't even placing herself alongside Jesus. She was placing Jesus in her mind and in her affections on a pedestal and with, without any overplay of the word, she was worshipping him. That's what she was doing. She was exalting him. Now look at how Jesus deals with this. Let's put now, let's whiz back to the 21st century. Because our 21st century attitudes do not have the attitudes of 1st century judgmentalism. Actually, they are far more shaped over the centuries by the Christian perspective of Jesus' way of dealing with it. We tend to think a degree of anger towards the attitude of Simon and a degree of compassion towards the woman. We feel indignant towards Simon's behaviour, don't we? 
And you would say, well, why didn't Jesus feel indignant towards Simon's behavior? He doesn't seem to. He actually tells a story. I think that's remarkable. Because the one person in that room who had the right to be indignant towards the woman was compassionate towards her. And the one person who had the, in the room who had the right to be indignant towards Simon was patient with him. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus was compassionate and patient to both of them. Look at the way these social interactions are going on. He tells a story. Simon, I've got, I want to tell you a story. Imagine a scenario. Two people owed a money lender. 50 denarii, one of them owned 500 denarii. One of them owned 10 times the amount of the first one. And this money lender, he forgives them both, their debt. He forgives them their debt. It's a really interesting and really helpful phrase that he uses there. He forgives them their debt. Simon, who's going to love them the most? Well, maybe we should ask ourselves. Who is going to love him the most? Who's going to love that moneylender the most? I suppose the obvious answer is the one who's been forgiven the most. And Jesus goes with it. <laughs> he goes with the answer. He says, yes, I, I suppose you're right. Maybe the one who knows that they've been given, forgiven the most in other words, if love is, an ex is the beginning of an expression of kindness, the person who has been forgiven the most expresses the greatest love and affection. Do you know what, Simon? You didn't even follow the social conventions of the day. You didn't wash my feet. In fact, Simon, you didn't show me any kindness. In fact, Simon, if we want to stretch and investigate the relationship that is going on here, the fact that I'm here is actually all about you, isn't it? It's not all about me. I'm here because you want me to be here for your sake. I'm here because you want to talk to me for your sake. I am not a priority. You are not displaying kindness as you put food on the table for me. That is a manipulative event that is going on because you are placing food on the table so that I will be here for your sake. Because if you really were kind in your disposition towards me, you would have done the first things. You would have washed my feet. You would have greeted me with a kiss, which was the convention of the day. You would have shown those relational expressions of kindness towards me. You would have exalted me. You would have displayed that kindness. And yet, look at the difference here, Simon. This person hasn't stopped washing my feet, hasn't stopped 
displaying kindness to me. Do you see the power, the pointed power of what Jesus has just said in those two things? He said, firstly, this is not about displaying kindness. This is about being forgiven. And when you are forgiven, then you are able to display a whole new kind of kindness. In fact, it becomes a kindness which just explodes out. It is a relationship expression. She's doing it, and you're not. In fact, in the expression of relationship, Simon, you're placing me below you. She's placing me above her. And then she turns to the woman. Then he turns to the woman and he says the most startling thing, actually, in that gathering. He says to her, your sins are forgiven. For those who have not heard that phrase that Jesus has used before, that is religious dynamite for the Pharisees. We hear it, and in our, we are used to the idea of Jesus forgiving sins. But when Jesus said in front of Simon, your sins are forgiven, that is outrageous. Because in the Pharisees' understanding, and they are quite right in this, they are absolutely bang on the Pharisees, spot on, they know that only one person can forgive sins, and that's God. They're absolutely right. And that's exactly the claim that Jesus is making when he says your sins are forgiven. He's saying, I am the one who is able to say your sins are forgiven. What an incredible unfolding. This kindness, ability, this defeat of self-pity, this defeat of self-focus, according to the way Jesus explains the attitude of this woman and the attitude of Simon is rooted rooted in our understanding of how much we have been forgiven. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. That sounds initially like Jesus is saying to Simon, you don't need to be forgiven much, do you? She needs to be forgiven much, therefore she's going to be really appreciative, really thankful. <laughs> the reality is, Simon, you don't actually realize yet how much you need to be forgiven. That's the problem. You don't love a lot because you haven't been forgiven a lot. Because as soon as you realize that you need to be forgiven a lot, you will know that you can love a lot. That's the difference. 
That's the issue. And that plays right back into the 21st century for you and for me. Stephen Fry says self-pity is the most destructive thing and therefore we've not got to pity ourselves and we say, I cannot do it. I haven't got the strength and I haven't got the energy because part of self-pity is the recognition to some level that we need to be valued. We need to be accepted. We need that. To be thought ill of, to be thought little of. And actually to know that we justifiably should be thought little of is a crisis in our relationship with with other people around us and ultimately in our relationship with God. But then, when we realise that we've been forgiven a lot by Jesus, we are liberated. It works like this. You might not think much of me. You might think quite ill of me. You might have absolutely every reason in the world to think ill of me. If I have offended you, I'm sorry. But do you know what? I've been forgiven and I am loved by the king of all creation. And when I am accepted at that level, then I want to do everything I can to be in good relationship with you. But at the final analysis the only one that really matters to any of us is what does God think of us? What standing do we have before him? And I would say, every one of us in this room, in fact, every human being who's ever walked this earth, needs to be forgiven a lot. And as soon as we know that we are forgiven a lot, we are liberated We are freed. I am now free to show kindness to you no matter what. Kindness does no no longer has to be a negotiation. It no longer has to be what can I get out of it by showing kindness to you. It no longer has to be that. It can be kindness with nothing back. Because after all, I am accepted by the king of all the universe. Oh, and I also realize that every single one of us are in exactly the same standing before God. So I have absolutely no right in this world to stand in judgment on anybody else in the way that Simon does. That does not mean that we are not to encourage each other into a better way of living. Not at all. But I tell you what, it strips us of any right to judge another person. It strips us. Because we are leveled before God. We are leveled before Jesus Christ. And then when we are accepted by him, (laughs) we are all in him elevated 
to the highest level. Here's a question. We've seen this little story. We've seen that it's an issue for this woman. She came in. She was stripped of any fear because she knew she was accepted by Jesus. I actually wonder whether what went on here was an outcome of another occasion in her contact with Jesus. It's quite possible. She either knew that he would accept her or she had already been accepted by him. She had absolute confidence in him that she, should go, she could go up to him and it didn't matter what anybody else thought. I'm going to be accepted by Jesus. Who was the one who was blessed by God at that mealtime? It was actually the one who in human terms had no right to be blessed by God according to the ideals of the day. I want to ask you, maybe you feel I have no right to be accepted by God. When I look back at the life that I've lived, I can't possibly come to that God. I've got an understanding of how good he is. And I'm not worthy to be in his presence. Let me just say this. When you shed tears on his feet, he never turns you away. When you come in with a kind of judgmental attitude like Simon, you will not get very far. But when you realize who he is and you come with open arms and an open mind and an open heart and nothing hidden, this is who I am. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And that frees us and liberates us to show kindness to others. In fact, it's only that that can show ultimate, unreserved kindness, no matter what.